Hello, everybody. This episode of the Unusual Whales Pod was recorded live on August 26, 2022, prior to and following Jerome Powell's Jackson Hole Address. Our hosts were joined by some of the most brilliant minds in macroeconomics on the net to discuss Jerome Powell's address and the implications it has and will have on the markets from a macroeconomic viewpoint. Good morning, everybody. Hopefully, got another great one for you. We got a really great panel here preceding the Jackson Hole address this morning in about an hour, 10 minutes, I believe. So, I'm just going to do a quick run through of our panel, like I always do. Folks, as always, feel free to plug anything you got going on, anything you're working on, anything that just came out, feel free to plug it. We'll just move right down the panel here. So, First, we've got Fed Guy 12, Mr. Joseph Wang. He's a common occurrence here on the Unusual Whales Spaces. Welcoming him back, as always, head of the Fed's trading desk, excuse me, the open desk. Has an incredible book called Central Banking 101 and is the go-to guy we always call upon to speak about the Fed's operations. How are you doing this morning, Joseph? Hey, Soren, man. Thanks so much for inviting me. And thank you, Unusual Whales, for hosting. These spaces are great. I really love being here. I appreciate it as always. Your expertise is very helpful on these. Next, we've got Northman Trader, often considered a contrarian. A great newsletter as well. Beautiful market dashboards and an active guest on CNBC. I believe he's also hoping for some rain in the UK. We welcome you and your expertise again. How are you doing this morning? Hey, great to, great to be with you guys. And yes, we finally got a day of rain. It's amazing. So I've never seen people be just so joyful about rain <laughs> in England. Uh, Glad you got it. It was a pretty long dry spell there, man. Yeah. And so our bear markets, they, they come rarely these days. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us again, man. Sure. Next, we've got Tim. Oh, excuse me, Mike cut out once again. Thank you, Twitter Spaces. Next, we've got Tim Karsan, volatility expert, the founder of Kai Volatility, which you should subscribe to for sure. Incredibly passionate educator in the options volumes flow space, as well as one of the best traders in it as well. We're humbled by your presence as always and by your gifts, Jim. How are you doing this morning? Great, great to be here. Coming to you from... Uh... From the beach in Turkey, uh, I have a week off here, but I thought I'd, I'd jump in for this uh, for this event here. Anybody wants to ever kind of get a little uh, information on our newsletters and whatnot, we uh, you know look, take a look at kaivolatility.com backslash news. Um, you can sign up there. Perfect. Thank you, Jim. And again, thank you for coming. Up next, we've got the last bear standing. In this market, Riley, he may actually be the last bear standing. Last bear is an expert on Chinese real estate, the first to really chronicle it and follow it really closely. He has an incredible newsletter that you should already be subscribed to. Welcome back, Last Bear. How are you doing this morning? Thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing very well. Yeah, as you mentioned, I um, write on Substack, so you can follow me on Substack and here on Twitter if you like what I have to say. So thanks, guys, for having me. Thank you for being here. 
Up next, we've got Fixologist, also known as Jim Carroll, the first timer here on the Unusual Whales Spaces, the Unusual Whales Pod, but really big fans of his in the Unusual Whales world, also an expert on volatility, can talk term structure of VXX for ages and a lover of guitar. Welcome, Jim. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, we finally sent some of our rain over to uh, Sven, but... Uh, uh, nothing nothing specific to plug, no newsletter, but uh, reachable at Vixologist on the Bird app, and the DMs are open. Beautiful. Thank you for joining us this morning. Then, Mr. Macro Alf, our pizza connoisseur, bond master, another great Substack podcast, constant force of macro on Twitter. Follow his upcoming newsletter as well. Welcome, Hey guys, bringing a bit of Italian accent to the to the spaces. Got to have that flair, man. You sound great this morning. And last but not least, friends, we've got Doomberg. No macro space is complete without Doomberg. He's known well for his incredible insight into the commodity trading. He was the first to highlight the disparities in food production in 2022. And another excellent newsletter that y'all should be subscribed to already. Welcome, Doomberg. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Such an uh, unbelievable cast of uh, commentators. It's a real privilege to be here and uh, looking forward to a robust discussion. Beautiful. Thanks for coming. All right, everybody, might as well get started. Feel free to jump in at any point, speakers, even after someone else speaks. Um, obviously, we don't want to be interrupting each other in a bunch, but feel free to speak at any time, chime in. Uh, I'm going to only moderate kind of lightly, so feel free to keep the the discourse running. And, you know, I love to see some differing opinions as well. It's really good for conversation. So, all right, Jackson Hole, it's a bit different than other Fed events. Unlike FOMC, CPI, or any associated rate hikes, uh, this is Powell speaking about the plan of the Fed for the next four months and into 2023. This year's topic is reassessing constraints on the economy and policy. So I want to start with you, Joseph. What does this year's theme mean for Jackson Hole and the Fed, given previous year's themes and current contexts? I think monetary policy potentially may be changing going forward. And I take this from a leak from a recent article by Nick Timoreros, which, as we know, is kind of the Fed's speaker. I think one of one of the themes, themes explored in that piece was that what if we're entering a new world where inflation might be structurally higher? Maybe it's a shortage of labor. Maybe it's deglobalization. Maybe it's higher energy prices. And what monetary policy might mean in this world where we might be having inflation not because of too much demand, but instead structural shortages of things. And that'd be a very different world than we're used to, than we've been having the past few decades. And so I, I don't think the world really understands what the reaction function for the Fed or other central banks will be. Um, but more practically speaking, I think what the Fed wants to communicate for policy is, is very clear. And it's been a team effort uh, on by the entire FOMC what their plan is for the coming, let's say, year or two. And that is to say, higher for longer. So... They're envisioning hiking rates about three and a half, four, and just keeping it for, for an extended period of time. They've been working hard to communicate that. And um, I expect Powell to also to emphasize that point again. And the market may or may not fully believe in that. And we see that initially the market doubted them a lot. 
by pricing a lot of cuts next year, but a lot of that has also been taken out. So they seem to be becoming more effective in communicating that. Um, so I don't expect any huge market moving announcements today. Jam, you have been a vocal critic of Powell thus far and the fight on inflation. Before we speak on that, you've also spoken regarding populist fiscal policy, making things hard for monetary policy makers. Do you think Powell himself is a byproduct of this politics meets economics quagmire? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two kinds of inflation. I think we refer to them with one word, inflation, and I think that's uh, that's incorrect. Uh, there's largely you know, one inflation that we can uh, that the Fed can broadly manage, which is psychological inflation. It's the expectations of long-term interest rate and inflation. Um, and they've done a relatively good job uh, recently of, of taking that back down. Um, but there's, there is such a thing as structural inflation. There are imbalances of, of supply and demand that happen in the market uh, for structural reasons. And, and uh, those are big macro trends. Um, and I think, you know, my opinion, uh, and I think I've kind of laid it out pretty well before, but, you know, I'll briefly lay it out again is, is that, you know, populism due to 40 years of inequality is, is here. It's not going anywhere. It's, uh, it's been building for some time. It started with the Tea Party and it started with uh, Occupy Wall Street a decade ago here in the U.S. Uh, and then finally was given a voice by the right and Donald Trump and the left and Bernie Sanders. And, uh, you know, it's a global phenomenon. Um, and uh, it's it's a demographic thing as well, right? The millennials who grew up during that 40 years um, have been the ones most hurt uh, by this inequality and, and have a, a view that's focused on, um, you know, very much on equality and equity. Um, so, you know, those those trends are here to say where a lot of these fiscal policies that we're seeing our response to that COVID was the kind of the, the spark that set it off. But uh, but I but there's, uh, you know, a lot of. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of things here that are underneath the hood that are that are driven by politics and populism and by the people. Um, and those aren't going away. Uh, and that's causing, you know, uh, labor shortages, underemployment, uh, which we many of us have talked about housing shortages as labor, you know, as, as these these populations are now have more money to um, uh, to spend. And, uh, you know, these these things are, are, are sticky. We're seeing sticky inflation go higher. Um, that's the long. That's going to ultimately, in my opinion, affect the longer end of the curve when when the world starts to really come to terms with that a bit more. Uh, there's going to, you know, we'll probably have a recession between now and then, as we saw in the 1960s, um, and uh, and we'll see, uh, you know, actual inflation level out at a, at a higher level than the, the gold two, two and a half, three percent, or whatever it is. Um, and ultimately, uh, the Fed will be more and more in a box, and, and ultimately, we'll probably lose credibility, in my opinion. But there's a lot, lot more to dive into than that. But that's that's kind of a brief overview of kind of how I how I see things. I think we're seeing that play out in real real time here, um, and I think there's a, a significant um, opportunity um, given that the market is not actually pricing that at this point. Does anybody else want to speak in on that? Yes, yeah, Doomberg here. I would just add to the point about structural inflation. Um, it's really been an unbelievable week in the international energy markets and. Um, you know, this is something that many people have been writing about for a while. It's been a focus of ours, but um, we're about to see the sort of long-term impacts of uh, renegotiated contracts at much higher prices. You know, it's one thing to watch the spot price, but um, how this sort of inflationary pulse uh, that we're seeing, incredible historic inflationary pulse that we're seeing in the energy markets find their way into 
downstream commodities and materials is is playing out right now. You know, as we sit here this morning, I honestly I think what Powell says at, at Jackson Hole is not nearly as relevant as the fact that you know Dutch TTF natural gas is trading at ninety five dollars per million BTU. Uh, I see that the JKM contract in Asia is up to seventy dollars per million BTU, trying to play catch up, um, losing the incremental bid for those um, LNG carriers. Cold is persistently at 400 and change, 417 this morning. Uh, German year forward electricity, as I look on my screen, is 900 euros per megawatt hour, up from 40, 18 months ago. Chemical plants, smelters, both you know zinc and aluminum smelters, under serious pressure in Europe. Um, fertilizer plants closing in Europe. All of this pulse is going to find its way downstream as contracts get re renegotiated uh, and prices get passed on down the line. And so it's really... Uh, you know, absent um, a, a massive recession, I don't know how we get th these energy prices under control, and I'm not sure that the Fed has anything in their toolbox to deal with that. So that's the only point I would add um, to build on what the last speaker was saying. Perfect. Thank you. And we can touch more on energy here in a bit as well. Uh, I do have one extra question here. Before we speak about structural versus cyclical inflation energy markets, Joseph just said that the Fed is getting better at communication. And Jem said that we, they're doing you know, a better job at bringing it down. Beyond the market, many people, including Jem, think that, <clears throat> excuse me, right now I've said that Powell and the Fed have lost credibility. Mohammed El Ayrian from Cambridge said that the Fed has failed at analysis, failed at forecasting, and even failed at communication. Sven, do you want to take this one in light of Jackson Hole equality and the Fed's efforts at Jackson Hole in an hour? Can you kind of touch a little bit on that as well? Yeah, first of all, in terms of the Fed doing a better job of communication, we really don't see that. I mean, look, the, since the July Powell speech, financial conditions have loosened. I mean, that was the entire rally, basically, and every Fed speaker since then that's tried to squeak hawkish has been ignored. Uh, you, you cannot beat structural inflation with loosening financial conditions. I would go further to say you cannot beat structural inflation with the Fed not even being restrictive in policy, which they're not. In fact, Powell's comment in July of being at neutral, a very questionable comment in, in general, but it was clearly interpreted dovish by, by the market, which got us this big rally and these big MA reconnects into the 200 MA and the weekly 50 MA on the on the Russell. So that that's all part of uh, kind of standard bear market rally functioning. I guess the question now and the challenge for Powell is, if he did not mean them to be as dovish interpreted, how is he going to get credibility back? Because the Fed and all his Fed speakers actually have been rightfully saying, or many of them at least, that they need to go into restrictive territory because that's the history. You, you go back 70s and 80s, the Fed had to go restrictive to get rid of inflation. And the risk is that if they're not, and, and, and what happened in the summer with financial conditions easing again, it goes completely counter to the mission. And the risk is that if you're not forceful, if you're not decisive, that this entire inflation equation continues to drag out. And, and the typical solution, the typical solution to get rid of inflation is a recession. And obviously, they've been dancing around this by talking about softish landing, soft landing, this, that, and the other, because no one wants to take the pain, especially not in a midterm election year. I get that from a political point of view. But when you look at other central banks, like the Bank of England, 
they're, they're sending a lot, a much more honest message. In fact, the head of the Bundesbank came out today and said the same thing as the Bank of England. We're going to have a recession. I, I don't know why in the U.S. this is such a taboo topic. You know, just be straight with people. This is what is required. And so, yes, you know, they need to go into restrictive territory. And frankly, we have seen this in a long time in markets. Markets have not, not had to deal with restrictive policy. And, and we didn't even really have that in 2018 when they kind of tried to go, you know, reduce their balance sheet and raise rates a little bit. And then they flip-flop when unemployment was at 3.5% and inflation was at 2%. I mean, based on their mandate, it was completely ridiculous that they did this. But they've trained, and because of this, they've kept training markets and participants to expect the pivot, to expect the flip-flop. And that's why no one's taking them seriously right now. That's the problem. You have, you have a, a Fed that actually has a huge credibility issue and Powell is basically on the spot and I was listening to some of the uh, Wall Street commentators yesterday Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs and what have you and none of them expect them to be hawkish or to actually be believably hawkish. There's always kind of that selfish expectation from Powell that he does not have basically the balls to do what's what's necessary and, and that's why you've got the futures market pricing and rate cuts for next year so I, I think this is a problem and it's a, as Mohammed Elian Aaron correctly said, it's it's an analysis problem and it's a communication problem uh, because they they've never shown in the last 10, 15 years to really stick to anything other than to bail out markets as soon as they drop, and and so now faced with inflation and structural inflation, which is not coming back down to two percent anytime soon, they're going to have to cause some pain. And I think that's now the communication challenge. And we'll see today if, if Powell actually, you know, reverts back to a hawkish message that the market actually believes or not. Thank you, Sven. For last bear, uh, let's just say, do you have any opinions on structural versus cyclical inflation? Has the Fed lost credibility in your bear eyes? Because as Sven, you know, as Sven just said, we do need a full, you know, full blown recession to deal with inflation. Do you agree with that? Um, I think history shows that that typically is the case, that that's the best way to fight inflation is through recession. And nobody likes saying that, but that's kind of the reality of the situation. So I think eventually you, you will see that and inflation will come down. Um, I think it's also important to, uh, you know, sort of remember the context of the past two years. It's, in some ways, it kind of feels like a long time ago, but, you know, this is the first uh, Jackson Hole in person for for three years, and in some ways, at the beginning of every Fed statement for the past two years, you had this sort of intro about the uncertainty and risk around the pandemic, and that was sort of this overshadow um, that sort of kind of took precedent to everything and, and allowed, at least as a cover for sort of a really expansionary policy for a long time. I think that we have to, and, and at the same time in, in 2020 you were actually dealing with, you know, oil prices that were incredibly low. You had more of a deflationary bend than an inflationary bend at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. Um, and so I think now we're kind of entering a new phase where, you know, this, this overhang really finally is, I think, in everyone's mind gone and allows the Fed to sort of move into a new role in an economy um, that seems to be chugging along fairly well and has a serious inflation problem. Does anyone else on the panel have any comments to what Bear just said? 
I'll actually step in here with one comment. I, uh, this is both Tabir and, uh, and Sven. I think there's a general uh, agreement among people that, that the, the only right way forward um, is for the Fed to cause a, a major recession in order to get structural inflation lower. I, I would argue that that's not true at all. Um, I know that's not the party line. Um, I know that's not what most people would think. But but hear me out on this. I, the reality is in the 60s and 70s, part of what made inflation sticky and secular were the 7.5% that William McChesney Martin raised interest rates and the first recession he caused and the populist response of that. When you are in a period of populism, when you get a recession, the response is more fiscal. That is what will happen. You know, the the uh, the angry mobs are at the at the door. Uh, and you know, the when you get a crisis, when you get a real recession and real pain, politicians do not have the stomach. Uh, they have to respond to the angry masses. That is how this whole thing works. Populism is not going away. It will get made worse by recession. That's what happened in the 60s. That's what happened in the 70s. The way Volcker was able to end that was because structural inflation came to an end after 15 years. We rebalanced inequality and a lot of other negative effects that had come with the previous cycle had passed. The Volcker myth, this idea that Volcker caused this, was tough enough on inflation to raise rates high enough and finally slayed the dragon of inflation is not true. Um, if you go look at history, if you really study history, that's not true. He was the third uh, person to come raise interest rates by dramatic amounts to battle inflation. And each time they lowered inflation a, a decent amount, but it leveled off structurally at a higher level and then came back at a, with an even greater veracity afterwards. So I, I, I ask people to challenge that perspective. I think that's important. I don't think people challenge that enough. The idea that a uh, that a massive rise in interest rates is ultimately the best solution. What we need is supply side responses from government. And to be quite clear, you can't solve every problem with an easy fix. This is a populist problem. This is 40 years of imbalances. Uh, and, and if we choose to, as a society, rebalance from a massive level of inequality, there is a cost to that, and that is inflation. So I'm just going to throw that out there and, and see what people have to say. Really good points. Does anybody have any comments on what Jim just said? All right, so well, I'm going to toss. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. I would. Yeah, I would. I would just just say if you look at the seventy uh, examples, eighty and eighty-two, uh, when we did have these high inflation uh, events, the Fed raised aggressively, and at some point inflation peaked, but markets structurally did not bottom until the Fed was already in a deep rate cutting cycle, an aggressive one. Why? Because the economy did go into recession. High inflation is ultimately recessionary. We're now in a period where consumers have experienced a year and a half of negative wage growth. The piling in the credit cards, personal saving rates is collapsing. And we're in a period where housing affordability is at the lowest since just before the housing crash in 07. Uh, so in terms of excess that has been built into the system over the last few years, not only through fiscal stimulus, but also monetary stimulus, mainly, you know, this this boneheaded decision 
to buy $1.5 trillion in mortgage-backed security into a supply-constrained housing market has greatly accelerated and made unaffordable for people housing. And that's why we've seen these rent increases and everything else. And the Fed hasn't even begun in, in any serious manner yet to reduce all the liquidity they've put into the system. So QT is starting supposedly in earnest in September, October. That's when they go to this $95 billion a month. So far, you know, the balance sheet reduction has been rather tame at this point, I would say. And this has an impact on overall monetary um, supply in terms of uh, the monetary base. And so that's that's going to come down as well. I think just in general, we, we just got to be recognizing that we, if we think we've had this cleansing of everything, we haven't. We're kind of just still at a starting point here. And the Fed has, in general, been, you know, they, they're always super fast to intervene uh, when, you know, the assets of the top 1% are impacted in terms of stocks. But when they have a crisis now in how it impacts, especially the bottom 50% who are hurt the most by inflation, they've they've shown themselves to be, again, very cautious and meticulous because, again, they don't want to overly upset markets. I think that's kind of the situation of wanting to eat your cake and have it too. Um, you you, you got to be at some point willing to take pain. And, and unfortunately, we all have been living through an extended period now where the pain was always taken away by, by intervention. So I, I think the notion that, you know, we can deal with all these issues, and, and frankly, you know, the Fed does not control some of the aspects of inflation, obviously. But uh, the, the the fact that we are now, you know, in, a few months into this process and kind of declaring victory here already, because that's kind of the sentiment you get from markets, now that it's all over and the Fed's going to pause, and that's the end of monetary tightening. I don't think that's true at all. I think we're looking at a probably a couple of year process here of noodling through all this and trying to get inflation back down. And it's not going to happen overnight at all. And so I think the the, the, the the notion that, you know, even if inflation shows some signing of rolling over, it doesn't mean it's over. You, you still have the tremendous pressure on the population. Just today, I'll give you one example. In the UK today, uh, the regulator announced uh, price increases for energy for consumers from 1,900 UK pounds to 3,600 UK pounds, an 80% increase. Absolutely massive, and people are going to be radically hurt by this on the lower income spectrum. So I think the notion that this has all kind of worked itself out already at peak inflation I don't think it's true at all. I think the effects will be felt for, for at least a couple of years. So that's kind of just my general comment on this. Beautiful. Thank you. Before we dive deep on QT, Alf, do you want to speak about Volcker versus Powell versus uh, versus Arthur Burns that Jem just mentioned? Uh, I know you have some thoughts and strong understanding of the history there, Alf. Yeah. Um, I'd say that Jem has some very valid points here. Um and generally speaking, raising interest rates above any whatever expectation of neutral interest rates is a, generally speaking, a decent way to slow down demand and bring down inflation. But it is not as mechanical as many people depict it, of course. And so what the Federal Reserve is trying to do right now is 
roughly, I would say, a bit with Europe, uh, if I can use a, uh, a comparison, what Europe tried to do in the early 90s. In uh, France, in Germany, in Italy, in Spain, we had um, stick inflation way above 4% in Europe at the beginning of the 90s, which was due to many factors. And, uh, no, no need to elaborate on those. But what's important to know is that, for instance, in France, uh, nominal interest rates needed to be double any reasonable estimate of neutral rates back then in order to bring inflation down all the way to 2%, which meant that five-year French government bond yields had to trade at 9% for a couple of years, while reasonably speaking, any estimate of neutral was around 4 to 5% back then because of better demographics, better productivity, etc., etc. But observed nominal yields had to trade 9% for a couple of years in order to tighten conditions enough to bring down inflation. Now, even in that case, you are not assured the inflation will come down because there might be um, sticky, non-demand driven, but rather supply driven uh, phenomenon underlying slash uh, long-term changes in inflation dynamics that you can't easily control with interest rates. But just to talk about the magnitude, Europe in the 90s had to raise rates easily 400 basis points above neutral. And they did manage to bring inflation down. A couple of years later, core inflation in Europe was way below 2% already. So this goes to show, I think, why the Federal Reserve, and we just uh, heard uh, Arker speaking, by the way, uh, it's not a voting member this year, but it's a, a Fed member, a Fed president. And he literally said, uh, well, I think neutral rates, first of all, are at least at 3% and not at 225, 2.5, as Powell says. And second, uh, we need to be tighter, 35 to 4% for longer, which would only be, by the way, 50 to 100 basis points above neutral. But the for longer part is important. I think the Federal Reserve is trying to realize that raising rates and jacking them up to 4% uh, and then allowing the bond market to price in cuts in 23-24, which reflects into financial conditions and borrowing rates from houses and corporates is not the right strategy. They need to be able to convey a message where they can keep rates tight for long. One thing is whether they want to convey that, and I think they strongly want that. The other is whether um, the economy is able to handle that. Real personal spending numbers were just out. So inflation-adjusted spending from uh, U.S. consumers mostly was is trending at 0% on a six-month um, moving average basis. So basically, we are, uh, from, a, from an inflation-adjusted perspective, not growing on consumer spending at all. At the same time, the Federal Reserve has to project a tight monetary policy stance. And I think that's what we're going to hear from, uh, from Powell today, too. I want to add something about Sven's point really quick about the, the Fed just always cutting to save asset markets. And that certainly does appear so. But there's another aspect to this. And it, it seems like this Fed is, doesn't, is also very worried about its effect on um, the economy. So also, when, when, you, when you create a recession, when you take pain, you heard asset markets as well, but you also cause a little bit of unemployment. And that trade-off between unemployment and inflation, you know, you can weigh it in a lot of different ways. And this Fed seems to really weigh uh, the employment cost very high. So they seem to be very scared of over-tightening. One of the things that surprised me in the most recent minutes was that even though unemployment was at 3.5%, even though CPI was at 8.5%, and the Fed funds rate was only at 2.5%, there are many, it seemed, many FOMC participants worried about over-tightening. And to me, that just strikes me as a Fed who's very, very scared of, of causing unemployment. 
And that goes back to Jim's uh, populist thesis as well, I think. When you have a very populist culture, you basically value uh, employment much more highly than you would uh, inflation, which I think many people think of as hurting people who have own assets more. So if that's the culture now, you'd, you'd expect the Fed to be uh, very reluctant to tie in to cause not just maybe asset prices to fall, as some would think, but also to create any additional unemployment. And I think Jim's point of just this populist culture being very, very important in driving inflation is something we've seen before, not just from increasing demand, but also reluctance to use the tools that the government has. Back in the 70s, what we had was we had the implementation of the Great Society uh, from Lyndon B. Johnson. We also had the Vietnam War. So we had a lot of inflationary spending at, at the time, but we also had a culture where people like now were very scared of creating unemployment. They valued employment very highly. And so if you listen to Arthur Burns talk, he'll say that, yes, I could have tightened policy enormously. I could have crashed the economy and created lots of deflation. Uh, but when I did that, everyone was crying about you know, raising un raising unemployment. And so that's why I did not do that. So this culture, populist culture, not just creates additional inflation by more demand, but it also ties the hands of the authorities who have the power to put a, put a stop to this. And I think that's going to play out here today as well. In fact, if the minutes are any indication, uh, it, it's already having a big impact. And if you look at, listen to what people talk about in Twitter or in certain segments of the media, um, you'll have many people who very speak disparaging of the Fed in, cre in creating unemployment, uh, in taming inflation by creating unemployment. So there are many people, it's at least a vocal minority who view any trade-off as unacceptable and they seem to have loud voices. Perfect, thank you, Joseph. So just kind of pivoting onto another point here, Jim, we've mentioned the market a ton. Before we open in about eight, 10 minutes here, I'd love to get your take on the volatility conditions in the market right now. We've had a small bump in volatility at the start of this week, but generally we've seen volatility compress where realized volatility seems a lot higher than the VIX. Can you give us a bit of a breakdown you're seeing and measuring and how the current macro environment has changed some of your investments? Jim Carroll. Yep, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. You sound great. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm a very simple man. I may be the least macro person on this call uh, because I just don't understand how to read those tea leaves. I switched from economics to psychology for that reason. Um, I tweeted out a couple of things earlier in advance of the call, but let me just review. There are some things that definitely catch my attention. Uh, one of them is just trying to define you know, what a vol regime might look like. Um, and I have a very simple way that has helped me a lot over the years. And, and I just take a simple one-year moving average of the VIX. And when that one-year simple moving average is above 20, I start to wonder if we're not in a place where we're going to have some persistent volatility. We talked about whether Inflation is transitory or persistent. Um, well, guess what? You know, with COVID, we took that moving average back above 20. We dipped a little bit from November to March, and we're back above 20 again. So, you know, I think people should not be surprised if we have continuing bouts of volatility. Uh, in terms of 2022, it's kind of interesting to look at some of the stats 
We've got a median value for VIX right around 25. The long-term median for VIX is 16 and a half. A lot of people talk about the average of 19. Uh, 2020's median with the COVID stuff was 27. So we're only two points off of that. You talked about realized vol, and, and I look at 21-day realized vol for the S&P. We're currently hovering around 22. Long-term median is less than 13. So, you know, we're not quite double the long-term median for realized vol. And 2020's median was 21. So, you know, everything I look at suggests that we're in a, um, a persistently higher vol regime. And I, I don't know that anything that Powell says today is going to change that. Um, I, I think we just can't be surprised um, if we continue to see bouts of volatility. They may be short-lived like most of the ones we've had this year. And this year has been a nightmare to hedge. And Jim can certainly talk more about that. You know, traditional hedges have not helped people this year. Um, that may change going forward. But, you know, it, it's it, it doesn't look like we're coming out of the woods anytime soon from my perspective. Thank you. For Doomberg and Last Bear, we spoke about populism dominating economic economic policy. Rather, Do you believe in that? Do you think, as Joseph said, the Fed is hypersensitive uh, to causing too much pain in unemployment? I think the evidence um, just in the past couple of weeks, both with the passage of the uh, dubiously named uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, but we believe more importantly the um, concession um, by Biden that you know $10,000 worth of student loans would be forgiven. Um, I've seen estimates that that's going to cost up to sort of $300 billion. You know, these are inflationary pulses um, that, that I think, you know, the, the, the fiscal side of the equation has been sort of driving this post-COVID. And, and um, again, as we talked about earlier, as we head into this, you know, November election, um, buying votes is inflationary. I don't know if Last Bear has anything to add, but I, it, this seems to be pretty transparent what's going on and, and would run counter to Powell's mission. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think you had a situation over the past couple of years where the Fed was actually encouraging uh, expansionary fiscal policy, um, which they thought was necessary for that to improve the economic conditions. And now you're in a situation where the Fed's trying to put, you know, put the brakes on. But at the same time, that fiscal impulse, impulse clearly is still there, both at the federal level, but also at various state levels. I know a business I'm involved with just got a check for almost $10,000 that we had no idea was coming from, from our state government. Um, you know, there's a lot of it, sort of to, to the points made earlier. I think it's, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. And obviously politicians are going to put it on the Fed to tame inflation. They're not going to, out of, you know, their desire to, to tame inflation, pull back on, on their desire to, to spend and, um, you know, appeal to voters in that way. So I think it is going to be a struggle now for the Fed um, sort of fighting this battle alone while maybe they were fighting the deflationary battle of two years ago, sort of hand in hand with fiscal policy. You know, just Jim. a general comment. I, I thought, I thought, sorry to butt in here, but yesterday I think it was ECB's Lagarde that came out and basically admitted that uh, their models have not been working well 
in terms of adjusting to a new environment, constantly underestimating the uh, economic impacts and obviously inflation in, in general. Also, Bullard came out yesterday and admitted that they totally overdid it with their balance sheet last year and staying easy as long as they did. So, you know, while I'm always, not always, but I'm fairly critical of central bankers, I think there is some cognition on their side emerging that maybe they need to change their ways, they need to change their thinking, and that they're in the process of, of adapting as well to this to this new in, environment. And from from that perspective, I think maybe they're coming around to the fact, and this may be reflected in what we're hearing about higher for longer, that this is indeed necessary. And just in terms of equity markets, I don't think equity markets have priced that in yet at all, uh, because that will have consequences in context of, don't forget, guys, we're coming here into this inflationary environment with the highest debt construct ever that was entirely financed by cheap money. We have more zombie companies than ever that cannot even meet their debt obligations and so higher rates for longer will have structural impacts on on this market construct that still remains historically vastly extended remember market cap to gdp which everybody was kind of eye rolling last year we got to 200 percent we bottomed in june at 155 percent which was the top of the tech bubble and now with this rally we rallied back into 170s uh, so we're still, from a historical perspective, still in la-la land. And I don't know, and I don't pretend to know, but I don't think anybody really knows what the impact is of higher for longer, given that backdrop in, in, in debt, in market valuations, and in a basically an investor class that has never experienced higher rates for longer. So that's, that's kind of just general backdrop concern thank you sven and uh jim sorry i saw you unmuted earlier with regards to hedging and markets from jim's comments do you want to take a stab at that sure i mean i, I have a hard time shutting up about a lot of things so i keep no you're fine myself. but um no so with regard to, to volatility um look uh to jim's point about a, a 20 uh a 20 vix um, you know, historically, if you look at volatility um, and the performance of uh, implied volatility broadly, um, uh, unlike what most people think, most people think you sell vol when it's high and you buy it when it's low. Um, that's actually not true for about 90% of the data set. It's actually the opposite, which is very, very counterintuitive. It actually looks more like a U historically. If you look at the data, you are best off um, being long vol. Or, or an N, I guess. So you look uh, like a hump. You, you're best being long vol when, when vol is somewhere between 17 and a half and 25. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, and you're actually, and most of the data set is 25 or lower. So below 17 and a half, when you have a structured kind of lower um, vol, um, that's usually because uh, structured vol is, realized vol is lower, there's less risk in markets, and because of dealer positioning, and vol being lower, it, it structurally tends to pin the market more. So you have vast long periods where the best risk adjusted returns um, are actually you know, with low vol and even lower realized vol. And on a risk adjusted basis, that's actually one of the best and most probable situations when, when vol is, is a sale. 
Um, once you get above 30, 35, 40, depending on the environment, obviously that's a sale as well, but that doesn't happen too often. Um, so yeah, ironically, the best time to buy vol is when it's kind of in these middle, just above the long-term average of about 17 and a half. Um, so, and, and particularly when it's structurally there for a significant amount of time. So there is a, a lot to that data that, that Jim is re referencing there. I think that's important to note. When you continue to level out and, and stabilize um, in those levels, those are generally the best times. So that's from a, a 30,000 foot view. Otherwise, you know, just more specifically, I talked about this right before expiration, but we had an incredible amount of, you know, low liquidity, low volume in the summer. This happens most summers. Um, you know, the incremental amount that moves the S&P is usually somewhere around 75 to 80 billion. And, you know, it's been around 45 to 50 in that context, in that dramatically lower volume liquidity world. When you have the amount of short interest that we've had, according to Goldman, last month was the third highest short covering in the last decade. Um, when you have that kind of short interest building up and, and poor sentiment, uh, positioning as well, hedge, vol is coming off a you know, at 26, 27 level like it was. You have all these Vana and Charm flows I talk so much about. But then all the momentum factors, like, uh, you know, the, the momentum strategies, like vol targeting, risk parity, trend falling, start kicking in. You get massive uh, counter trend rallies. Um, not a surprise that it happened into August expiration. The day before expiration, we called for a turn. Um, again, not a surprise. Why? Because there's a quarterly expiration in September, sitting right behind August, where dealers are actually much much shorter and positioning is very poor. We saw something very similar happen February to March expiration of 2020. That's, that was the tinder box that created the, the, uh, the collapse um, from, from the, the VIX, uh, sorry, from the COVID crash. Um, when that happens, uh, you know, there's a lot bigger tail on the market, much bigger uh, probability of, of all of these momentum strategies then turning the other way. So again, I can go on for a while about this stuff, but very interesting time that pullback was was well expected ball, you know, leveling back up and, and having a floor there is very, um, is very important. Jim, do you have a response to that? No, I well, not a not a response per se, but uh, because I, Jim and I tend to agree on all of these things, um, and he put a, a very useful nuance out there about different levels and and how to potentially play them. I just wanted to say you've got thousands of people listening into this space. Please don't run out and buy Uvixi. Um, you know, if you want to trade volatility, especially from the long side, you need to know what you're doing. It's like juggling nitroglycerin. Um, please consult someone who does it for a living. That is all. I'd say that's pretty sound advice. Thank you. Kind of swinging back to something we discussed a little bit before, Alf, Sven mentioned that the ECB, excuse me, that ECB's Lagarde has said we can no longer rely exclusively on projections provided by our models. They have repeatedly been revised upwards these past two years. And Doomberg mentioned the commodity prices in Germany. And in your natively, Bloomberg says that hedge funds built the biggest bet against Italian debt since 2008. Do you have any comments on that, Alf? Uh, yes, I posted a couple of very popular charts on the Twitter feed and on the Macro Compass newsletter a while ago that showed um, the very poor performance. Feel free in, to pin uh, that in space if you'd like as well, Alf. Oh, to pin it in the space is if I only knew how to do that. I'm not very tech savvy. Fair enough, I'll find it. 
<laughs> I can send them to you in the in the conversation. You can pin them maybe. The story, yeah, perfect. Is that, the story is that uh, both in Europe and in the US, to be very honest, the ECB and the Fed have had a, a horrible track record in projecting inflation. The chart is is very fun because it shows projected inflation at any point in time against realized inflation, and they effectively never got even the path right, let alone the magnitude of the move up and down. Now, the interesting thing is that they have recognized that. So Powell said, I think a month ago or two months ago, that we have to admit we know uh, very little about inflation, which is interesting as a statement from a central banker. And now Lagarde is coming up criticizing her own models. The other thing I'd like to add is that also inflation expectations market, so the, the forward inflation swap market, also does a, a relatively so-so job, to be honest, in predicting what inflation is going to be. It's a very difficult exercise, but you would expect central banks or markets to fare very well. And in reality, they not always do that. When it comes to um, Italian story, in my opinion, together with the um, underestimation of the spillover effects from the Chinese real estate deleveraging situation, from a macro perspective, I think uh, the risk that lies ahead with Italian elections is one, it's a very low probability, very high impact uh, macro event ahead of us. It's very difficult to prepare for it. So normally you will have some players that decide to pay a certain amount of fixed premium upfront, for instance, by shorting Italian government bonds, and they would be happy with losing that premium and trying to um, achieve a very large outcome if the risk materializes. The reason why I say it's a very low probability, high impact event is that uh, the the electoral law we have in Italy effectively uh, favors large coalitions that are able to achieve um, roughly 42 to 45 percent of votes. And as you look today into what's the most likely outcome, I have to admit my base case is that the right wing coalition will prevail. The issue with the right wing coalition is that the the leader or the prime minister, the potential prime minister, is historically known to be a, a very very uh, Eurosceptic, Eurocritic person. And of course, now she will need to adjust the rhetoric to try and get as many votes as possible. But deep in her heart and in her belief, she is a um, yeah, very nationalistic leader. And obviously, that will add uh, uncertainty. Also, the timing of this election is extremely tricky because it will be uh, exactly in the middle or just ahead of cooling temperatures and therefore... Um, strategic situation of gas and energy security in Europe and Italy is one of the largest uh, GDP weighted countries within the Eurozone so having a leader that is not necessarily um, very friendly also having the uncertainty of setting up new ministers etc it is it could be very problematic so I, I, I tend to understand uh, to a certain extent hedge funds trying to set up positions against Italy it's a very expensive one to own Potentially, the European Central Bank might decide to stop you out from the trade. But we just hear right now, as we speak, that sources are siding several ECB governing council members uh, wanting to seriously explore a 75 basis point hike at the next meeting. Now, can you imagine the European Central Bank hiking by 75 basis point? It's, uh, it goes to show the, the dilemma they are in right now. And it will exacerbate the problem in case the outcome of Italian elections is pretty poor. Thank you, Al. Doomberg, I just pinned your Hitchhiker's Guide to Hydrogen. Now, even though the destination of that may not be Magrathea, 
Do you care to comment regarding uh, the energy comments earlier, the ECB and your viewpoints here regarding what other speakers have said so far? Yeah, this is a drum we've been beating for the better part of a year. And um, we've said on other forums and in our writing that the resolution of the Western European energy crisis heading into the winter of 2022-2023 is perhaps the greatest macro event uh, for everybody to be watching, um, both geopolitical and economic. And um, it's really coming to a head as we, we pull in here to the end of August and get ready for um, fall. Uh, you know, and of course, there's a perfect storm in Europe as well with this massive drought, which uh, until very recently at least was causing um, you know, water levels in the Rhine to drop. We're seeing this sort of convergence. Everyone is chasing the incremental jewel. So you see um, the price of all commodities skyrocketing, but in particular, uh, and we're working on a piece for publication in a couple of weeks um, where we sort of build tools so that people could very easily compare um, energy inputs as a function of their content. Um, because everything is priced in different units, it can be difficult to compare such things. But um, natural gas in particular is just completely out of control. And, and again, it's such a critical input into the very front end of our supply chains because it is used to heat homes. It's used to, uh, to make electricity and it's also used as a key input into certain critical chemicals like ammonia uh, and so on. And so it's just, um, uh, it's uncharted territory. I mean, we've never seen prices like this. Just again, I quoted earlier, $95 Dutch TTF is the equivalent of almost $600 a barrel oil. Um, natural gas is literally selling for six times what the same jewel is selling for uh, in the oil market today. Um, and again, this is leaking into Asia. It's pulling up prices in the US and almost feels embarrassing to say that $9.50 per million BTU natural gas is expensive in the US, but 18 months ago, that was under $2 per million BTU. So, you know, it's a real political and economic time bomb and, and watching this fuse burn out in real time has been both fascinating and, and disconcerting. And I don't know what the ECB, whether 75 point basis cut, you know, is, is interest rate cut is going to do anything in the face of this tsunami of, of energy related inflationary pulse coming down the river. It's, it's, I don't know, to me, it's, it's, it's the single most important um, geopolitical and macroeconomic event on the horizon. And last, Bear, given Doomberg's comments that the winter in Europe is the greatest macro event incoming, do you still stand by your great recent Substack piece that, uh, that a drop in equities is coming? I know, I know uh, Joseph, Sven, and Jem might have some ideas here as well, but let's start with the, uh, you, last Bear. Um, yeah, I haven't uh, pivoted off that um, in the past week. Um, you can read the article from last week if, if you're interested why um, I made those comments. But I think that um, the, the, the stuff that Doomberg is laying out about Europe, I actually wrote about that as well this week. Um, but it's what's happening now um, is, is both sort of a failure in physical markets um, or, you know, potential failure, pre prepping for a potential failure in physical markets in terms of having um, enough energy supply for the coming season. Um, but what you also have when you have prices run in the way that they have is you can have fallout in financial markets as well. Um, as sort of this action creates a positive feedback loop where anybody who's short either through a trade or through physical positioning um, has to sort of go out and cover and you have this kind of mad scramble where you see prices blow up like this and you can have sort of financial fallout well in advance of an actual sort of physical failure. Um, and so that's just an interesting topic. I totally agree with Doomberg um, that this is a absolutely critical macroeconomic uh, event that's happening in Europe. 
I think that there's a lot of, uh, you know, other large macro events that, that could be pretty devastating to the economy, including what's going on with China real estate um, or even just a reversion in asset bubbles uh, in developed countries. So um, there's a lot on the horizon. Sven, Joseph, Jim, and Jem, do any of you want to jump in here regarding Doomberg and Bear's comments regarding an equity blowup and potential European macro fallout? I have a very quick uh, comment on oil and commodities. You know, in the last week and a half, we've gotten two major pieces of information on the commodity front that, that the market has just really whistled by. One, uh, I think it's almost a week and a half, maybe almost two weeks ago now, you know, China gave a, you know, a surprise cut and has signaled that they're going to start stimulating again. Um, that is honestly the one thing that has most kind of been uh, the reason commodities have come down because of the amount of, uh, you know, unexpected kind of not ex- unexpected, but the amount of stress that we've been seeing in China uh, and, and the depth of, of the building problems there. But if they're going to come back and start simulating again, that's something. Uh, and again, I think that the commodity markets have reacted to that. But you haven't heard much about that, too. Just several days ago, um, you know, Prince uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman came out in Saudi Arabia, uh, basically drawing a floor, sending a, you know, um, uh, a message to, to, to the U.S. and Biden that, you know, they if a recession happens here, they fully expect to cut production and support oil. So that these are all, you know, very structurally, uh, you know, bullish things for oil and commodities. I put that on the back of everything else we're talking about in Europe and all the other other structural problems. Um, you know, and then you put that in the context of that commodities decline uh, has really been the one thing that has helped the Fed and inflation recently. These structural sticky pieces have not been coming down. You know, if commodities are to turn higher, um, you know, the, the Fed has you know, big, big problems. I just add that um, I 100% agree, especially with the second point. And we interpreted and many others interpreted the Saudi statement as basically calling BS on the um, the U.S. futures market for oil. Um, and um, that, you know, the, the price of physical is going to set the price of oil, not the price of um, flows into uh, oil and gas futures. And so um, there was certainly a hidden message, if you read between the lines there, that had more to do about financialization of the price of oil as opposed to the the realized price of oil um, for physical barrels. Sven, Joseph, and Jim, do you want to also speak about the equity blow-up, sensitive Fed commodities, or the European fallout? Well, I mean, as we're in a, I still call it a bear market because to me it's not yet a confirmed bull market. For for that, I need to see technical evidence, which is a sustained move above above the weekly 50 MAs and the 200 MAs. And to to looking at historic precedents, you know, we're all faced with this, uh, you know, this the sense here. Okay, is this just another blip up bear market that's just going to go right back to new highs, as, as some were predicting, or uh, is with extended rate hikes and higher rates, are we actually going to be in a more extended bear market? I.e., two thousand. You know, I'm not predicting a financial crisis here, but something more substantial, like we saw in, in two thousand eight as well, and. For that, it's actually going to be the next four, six weeks, I think are going to be really interesting because so far what we've seen this summer with this big rally, which came off obviously extremely negative sentiment, extreme short positioning, and vast technical disconnects. This rally has now ticked a lot of boxes for me to say, okay, now we got to the reconnects. <clears throat> we saw the tag on the 200 MA on the S&P. I mentioned earlier the weekly 50 MA on the Russell, 
and we reject it from there. And so we're all going to be seeing the evidence, I think, in September, October here is can bulls get over this resistance? Then I think they're going to be in a very strong position. Uh, if they fail to do that, we may see a retest of the lows uh, and a lot more volatility. And I, I, I just generally would like to say, you know, if, if you want to believe in the bull case, that's fine. I'm, I'm just looking at a lot of charts that are on the macro area that are totally consistent with recession, not only from consumer sentiment but and productivity, which is some of the lowest we've ever seen. But just look at housing. You know, we're only at a 2.33% effective Fed funds rate. I mentioned the debt construct earlier and, and the, the excess that we've been having. In 2018, it was lights out at 2.25%. That's when the Fed flip-flopped. Now, we're slightly above it. And we're seeing already a dramatic impact on housing. And one chart I posted a couple of days ago was the supply of new houses, the monthly supply of new houses. It's now at 10.8 months. Every single time in the last 50 years, it got to above nine, a recession has ensued. And so now with this already happening at 2.33% and the Fed clearly talking about three and a half, three point eight four percent 3.84%, what, how is this housing market that can't even handle this situation, how is it going to react with even higher rates? And remember, there's a lag effect of these rate hikes filtering through the economy. I, I just don't see how the housing market, which is a really important part of the economy, is to going to suddenly magically improve or go even to higher prices. Remember, prices are still extremely high on housing as it is. I mentioned the unaffordability earlier. How, how that's going to magically improve over the next six to nine months while rates keep going higher. So I, I, th I think... To, to really fully embrace the bull case, you're going to have to work hard to ignore a lot of these things that are taking place in the larger economy. So I'm, I, I, I am open to more volatility, more downside testing. And obviously, you know, from a, from a practical perspective, as we just saw in June, you, you got to be, if you're navigating through these markets actively, you got to be flexible <clears throat> because... You know, it's it's hard to argue with a drunk at the bar. I'm, I'm sure you all have tried that at one point or another. We just saw that with Bed Bath and Beyond. You know, absolutely insane move and then total collapse, right? So these these things still take place, and bear markets are dangerous because they can rip your face off if you're positioned short at the wrong time, uh, or on on the flip side of that, if you get exuberant, thinking the worst is over, and you pile in long after 17% rally. So I, I think we all have to just be cognizant. There's a lot of big pieces at play. Uh, and from, from my perspective, bulls have yet to prove their case technically. So we'll get a little bit more about housing here in a second. But first, uh, Jim, Carol, do you want to comment about equity fallouts given your recent podcast of your investments becoming a bit more defensive recently? Sure. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to drop off um, after I finish these comments. But I, I wanted to, um, yeah, and well, uh, that comment about being defensive, uh, 
several of the strategies I run are short-term tactical strategies, and they definitely have been defensive. The other thing that I would add in response to Sven and really kind of agreeing with him uh, is I think in this environment, the people who are going to get hurt the worst are people who are dogmatically bullish or dogmatically bearish. Um, I think that uh, swing traders, people who can be nimble, uh, will have a better chance of navigating what I suspect could be wrong, but that's okay because uh, I'll, I'll take the evidence as it presents itself. But um, uh, I, I think that uh, hardcore bulls and hardcore bears are likely to be the uh, the biggest victims in this environment. Thanks a lot, guys. Hey, thank you for coming, Jim. Your insight's been really great this morning. So now that we're back a bit on the topic of housing, Joseph, we hinted at the housing crisis. The Fed ended up buying $1 trillion in mortgage bonds since 2009. How does the Fed look with mortgage-backed securities as a way to, as per credit sites, quote-unquote, put cash into the economy? And how does this affect housing? And it may be a good time to speak about your Fed balance sheet post with regards to MBS flows as well. Yeah, so the Fed, you know, the Fed has a lot of control or influence over interest rates, and interest rates affect the economy in different ways. It affects the financial economy strongly, as we all know, and it affects certain segments of the real economy strongly. And one of the segments that is really interest rate sensitive is housing. So when mortgage rates are low, people buy housing. Um, so and that's what they did in droves over the past couple of years. There's a Fed paper that came out, I think, a few weeks ago that suggested a lot of the boom in housing we've seen over the past uh, couple of years was really because low interest rates uh, fueled tremendous investment demand. The way that mortgage back uh, security purchases uh, fit into this is that it lowers mortgage rates. So uh, mortgage rates you can think of as, uh, so there's, a, let's say the 10 year, and then there's a spread on top of it. And then there's, that's the mortgage rate. So there's, there's mortgages trade at a spread to the 10 year. So when the Fed is buying mortgages, it's lowering that spread between mortgage rates and the 10-year, which, of course, puts downward pressure on, on interest rates. And it's strange that they were doing that in such size over, over the past couple of years when housing was, was booming. It's, I think, a very serious policy on their part. Um, but now that that's, now you can see their, their impact um, pretty clearly when they announced QT. When they announced QT, the spread between mortgages and the 10-year widened significantly. So that's kind of the impact of uh, the Fed leaving the market, pushing mortgage rates higher. And you can see that slowing mortgage rates significantly. So one of the th things that people talk about is whether or not uh, the Fed will actually be selling their mortgage-backed securities outright. And initially, I think earlier in the year, they, they were whispering that, but they don't really talk about that anymore. So it seems to be going to just basically on the back burner for now. Uh, my post recently about Fed balance sheet helps explain some discrepancies people have noticed. One of the things they've talked about is the Fed has promised to drop mortgage-backed securities by $7.5 a month, but you don't really see that clearly. Uh, the reason that you don't see the clean $7.5 drop per month is just due to accounting issues. Uh, so when you buy mortgage-backed securities, the Fed actually takes delivery of it within three months of, of purchases. So Sometimes when the Fed, let's say, bought a mortgage way back three months ago, it won't actually hit the balance sheet until three months later. It's 
mortgages that are purchased and yet to settle show up in a different category on its balance sheet. It's called commitments to purchase or commitments to buy mortgages. When you add commitments to buy mortgages plus the current mortgage holdings they have, you actually see that it's their mortgage holdings have declined exactly as they say they have. And that's there's a chart in my post that talks about this. Um, yeah, so hopefully um, after, let's say, September or October, there won't be any more reinvestments in mortgage-backed securities because the the uh, drop-off cap will rise from $17.5 billion to $35 billion. And at that point, there are no more reinvestments. So you'll see more of a clean drop in mortgage-backed securities on their balance sheet. Beautiful. Thank you. Silver, thanks for joining us at the tail end here. Care to comment on what speakers have said so far or any thoughts on Powell before Jackson Hole here in a few minutes? You know, um, something Sam Carson said, you know, I, I've been hopping in and off of this, so I've missed what other people have said. But Sam said something that struck me as very relevant that uh, I think he commented about Powell's, yeah, or not Powell, it was Volcker's history of raising rates and there's this mis this misconception that that was the main reason that inflation fell so dramatically in the late you know in the, in the early 80s and I, I sort of want to continue with that if you look at what happened it wasn't just volcker raising rates that killed inflation when they when they raised rates before yeah inflation comes down temporarily but as soon as you exit the recession it comes roaring right back to new highs unless you fix what the underlying problems are. Um, and if you look at what happened that actually fixed it at the same time as Volcker was raising rates to 20%, we had the Alaskan oil pipeline start producing. We started scaling up uh, Gulf of Mexico offshore oil production. North Sea oil came, scaled up dramatically. That solved the energy crisis of the late 70s. So that's, you know, the supply chain response of energy it played a big role in solving the inflation problems of the past. So this, this, this idea that just the Fed's going to solve inflation, that the politicians and I know all the bond guys think the Fed's all powerful and the Fed can do it. Or central banks can solve everything in terms of interest rates and, and inflation. But that's just not the case unless there's an actual commodity supply response that solves these supply chain problems that we're observing right now i think as soon as we come out of this recession that we're getting into right now you're going to see inflation just come roaring back to new highs well beyond 10 percent. and so you got to ask yourself where's the next commodity boom going to come from and i just don't see it i mean you, you were i don't see i don't see an a lot uh, a north uh I don't see a North Sea oil supply coming. I don't see another Gulf of Mexico coming online. I don't see another Alaskan pipeline moving everything from northern Alaska into the system. Uh, you really got to ask yourself where the next commodity boom is going to come from. Sounds like we might have lost them. Uh, so on that note, we are going to stream Powell's speech here in a second. Uh, we'll also be streaming the speech itself on the Unusual Whales Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash Unusual Whales. Uh, but first, I just want to thank all of you guys for coming today. And again, feel free real quick, if anybody has to here at the end before we let Powell speak, please pump anything you got, anything you're working on. 
Hey, Doomberg here. I do have to drop off. I have a podcast recording at the top of the hour, but it was great. Uh, thanks for allowing uh, me to participate. Uh, Doomberg.substack.com. You can find all our work there. Have a great day and, and enjoy the speech. Appreciate it, Doomberg. Thanks for coming. I'm going to drop up as well. Thank you everyone for joining. Um, so I write about the Fed and markets at FedGuy.com. If you guys are interested in how the monetary system works, check it out. Beautiful. Thank you guys so much. All right. That concludes the speech. I'm going to put one more thing up here at the top as well. Going to pin it up here to the space. Uh, anybody who's left over, anybody have any comments now that that's over? Sven, do you have anything, Alf? Well, the immediate reaction uh, is the dollar dropping. Um, so that's why you now see a counter rally here on the back of a quick dip. Uh, so got to watch the yields and the dollar, in my view, and see how they evolve. But net net effect here is, uh, you know, Powell seemed to be emphasizing uh, that indeed they want to stick the course. Uh, he said he wanted to be more direct. I think that was, that was an attempt to fix the dovish interpretation that we saw in July. Uh, so the message remains the same, higher for longer. Half speaking, uh, guys, the uh, summary of the speech is most likely Fed pivot my ass, I would say. It's pretty clear that uh, they want to be much more confident than the job is done. Um, actually, reading what Powell said himself, that brings me to the third and most important lesson, which is that we must keep at it until the job is done. And he also said that one single print uh, showing some downside surprise on inflation is definitely not enough. And that historically speaking, as I said before, for the European example, I could use US examples as well. You need to keep um, tighter financial conditions and monetary conditions for generally much longer than, uh, than what's being priced in by markets, which have basically priced in some tight policy for now four to five months already, but that's it. It generally takes much longer to feed into a real economy or at least to give Powell and the Fed uh, certainty or higher confidence that they're achieving their objective. They already were very wrong in 2021, late 2021, uh, by delaying the, uh, the tightening cycle. They won't make a mistake again of easing conditions too early. I think they will keep at it, as Powell is saying, uh, until the job is done. So Sven and Alf... Uh, if you were investing in this market, what would you guys be doing right now, given a potential longer tightening cycle? Um, I'll uh, take it and then I'll need to run. Um, I would say that this is one of the most difficult environment for long only investors because you have effectively uh, central banks forcing uh, risk-free real rates higher. Uh, when the economy is clearly slowing down, as recognized by, by, by the Fed already. So you have growth slowing down, and I think faster than, uh, than analyst consensus is also uh, projecting already. And on top of it, you have no support whatsoever. Actually, you have net uh, tightening from central banks all over the world, not only in the US. So in this environment, generally speaking, being defensive is the best thing you can do, um, which just means, in my case, owning much more cash than I would normally own, uh, denominated in dollar if I can. And uh, apart from that, there, there, I think there will be a great opportunity to be uh, long bonds. I've started accumulating some in June when we went to 3.5% almost in 10-year Treasury yields. 
I will be looking to accumulate more because ultimately, as the economy slows down and the Fed does even more damage to the economy than already priced in, you will, you will achieve the result. This is the message I want to come across with. If central banks are as tight and committed to be tight for a, a long enough period of time, you will compound negative economic growth to a point where you also hit inflation. It's very, very hard for an economy to be on its knees and at the same time to have broad inflationary pressures. So at that point, I think um, buying bonds will, will actually benefit portfolios much more than buying equities, at least on a relative value basis. For now, it's a very hard environment where having a higher cash allocation is probably the most sound and uh, implementable thing somebody can do with its investment portfolio. At least that's what I'm doing. Last words. Uh, I will now, uh, just right now, actually write a free article on the Macro Compass. Um, I will push it out on Twitter as well in a couple of hours where I will summarize what the economic data is saying, how the bond market is reacting to the, um, the Jackson Hole speech, and as well some more precise indication on uh, portfolio management from my side. And thank you for having me again on the space. It's always a pleasure. Hey, thank you as always, Alf, and I'll definitely be on the lookout for that post. Thank you. Sven, any last comments before we wrap up here? Yeah, I was just echoing what, what uh, Alf was saying in terms of having the flexibility of, of cash. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, these, these markets uh, are moving. Bear markets are in a you know, two-way direction. The macro, the, 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 the tightening of policy tells me that we have lots more volatility opportunity. Uh, you know, we're we're technical traders, so we use technicals to try to identify key pivots where it makes sense to trade long and where to scale out. Uh, then, you know, for for those that are inclined to do that, we're we're also looking at short opportunities. Shorting is always harder than buying, uh, so we've got to be mindful of that. But there are obviously key points where. And this is always the art of looking to what is relevant to markets. You know, we can argue about macro and this, that, the other all day long. But, you know, we have very high percentage of algorithmic trading programs. And these programs respect a certain aspect of markets. And that's what we try to identify in terms of what is relevant. And uh, certainly, for example, you know, we were been public about that we were bullish in mid-june and we started scaling out we started getting cautious in the last couple of weeks and then as we got the big tax i think this is now a point uh, where there were some short opportunities and we'll have to see how this plays out i, th I think in general based on what i see on all of history um, with with the the macro environment and the monetary environment it tells me this is not over at all and so there remains the risk to the downside but I also want to highlight one other thing, which is completely independent. Uh, that if you look at seasonality, which is always, you know, a bit, you know, subject obviously to uh, wild swings in markets. But in general, this year has played very much uh, like a standard midterm seasonality year, with weakness in the first half of the year. We, we actually use that as a tool sometimes as well. And it says, you know, we're going to see some sort of peak in mid-August. And yeah, we, we kind of did, didn't we? Uh, with this pullback we, we just had. Uh, but that also says we're going to have some more weakness into September, October. Uh, and then I think then we have the big decision for everybody because the, the seasonality chart 
points straight up to a big year-end rally for midterms. So that's the seasonality chart I'm referring to specifically. Um, the challenge, obviously, is the, the macro backdrop, which is not at all usual at, at all. So we're going to stay very much open-minded. And I think the, the challenge is just try to navigate in the, the macro and the technical aspects of it as, as best as possible and to stay flexible. I think that's just generally um, my view on how to approach these markets. And again, thank you very much for hosting this. Very much enjoyed it and uh, be happy to join again next time. And that's all she wrote, folks, for this episode of the Unusual Whales Pod. Please check out all of the speakers from this down in the description below. Follow them, learn from them. And of course, check out the Unusual Whales main Twitter page, YouTube, Reddit, Discord, and Twitch channels to learn more. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great rest of your day.